All right. I'm glad you're here. Uh, the message this morning is essentially this. Our actions should match our words. Um, our actions should measure up to our words. Our words, which we often lead with, should be backed by our actions. What you say is really important. Words are so important. What you say is really important unless there's nothing backing your words up. Um, And if there's nothing backing up your words, you're just talking. And that doesn't mean anything. Um, One of the dangers of doing what you're doing right now, which is coming to church, um, which many of us do regularly, is that in this culture, in this season of history, North American Christian church gatherings or services often typically include a lot of words and not a lot of actions. Uh, We push back on that. We try to engage our bodies in ways that create some kind of action. But essentially, this this is a gathering where we sing words, we speak words, we share words. And there's a danger to that. Words are not necessarily a bad thing, of course, but they can become empty if they're just words. If they don't come from action, meaning if, if what is shared is not rooted in the wisdom of life experience and actual practice, um, if they're not backed by action, in other words, if I'm saying something that I'm not living, that's, that's destructive. And if, if the words that, that you hear today don't respond or result in action, then, then that's, that that's establishes a destructive pattern in, in, in us as listeners, doesn't it? That we would just hear the word but not be doers of it. So um, it's, this is an important dance and an important relationship between words and actions. We are essentially, we're called to follow Jesus, not just admire him. You can admire somebody all day long and not do a single thing, not even agree with what they say, but you can admire them. But we're not called to admire Jesus. We're called to follow Jesus. And that means action. So our words should be backed by our actions. Our words and our actions should go hand in hand. And what we say and what we do, they should match up. Um, Our words should matter. What we say should mean something. And our actions should communicate. So we ought to be able to uh, grow into a way of living where we almost don't have to say anything because our actions are communicating Um, what is true. So as I reflected on the interactions I had this last week, as I often do in the evenings, I go, what was the part of my day for which I'm the most grateful? And what is the part of my day um, that I just feel like I I almost had no awareness of God at all? The parts of my day for which I was, or about which I was the most frustrated were encounters with people where I felt like their words were saying one thing, but their actions were saying something else. That really, you know, it bothers everybody probably. But those were my moments of, of greatest frustration. And um, by contrast, the points of the week for which I was the most grateful were when I recognized that people's actions were genuinely communicating the, their hearts. Their words were maybe stated, but it was their actions that really blessed me, that, that uh, encouraged me. So today is the second Sunday of the season of Advent. It's a Christian season, 
the whole year, the, the Christian church has sort of established in a, in a series of seasons. I'll talk more about the season of Advent in a minute. And the historic church has selected specific Bible readings to be read on Sundays leading up to Christmas. And one of the themes of these Bible readings is the anticipation of the coming of Jesus. This is what we're reading about. And so we have titled our Advent series, this four-week series leading up to Christmas, Come, Long-Expected Jesus. And the key sentence from today's gospel reading is this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. One of the values of um, submitting to and falling in line with these readings that are prescribed is that you end up reading stuff and I end up preaching stuff that I, would, I do not want to preach. <laughs> I don't really feel like this is a very Christmassy message. This text doesn't necessarily make me feel hope, love, joy. Kind of produce fruit in keeping with repentance. This is a confrontational statement. The words are spoken by John the Baptist, who is arguably the most confrontational figure in the New Testament. He is speaking to the religious authority, which he believes is way out of line, and the words are recorded by one of Jesus' disciples, a man named Matthew, who was a tax collector, starts to follow Jesus, and writes the first gospel, at least in the order we have them. And this is from Matthew chapter 3. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What a strange sentence. Isn't that weird? It's hard for me to figure that out. An old translation that I actually, it makes more sense to me, has it like this. Produce fruit that matches genuine repentance. And in the prayer book that I use in the mornings, that I use this morning, it had the sentence, produce fruit that is worthy of repentance. So essentially, this man who's known as John the Baptist is saying to a group of religious people, your actions should match your words. Your words should be backed up with your actions. And to be a little bit more specific, he's saying that your repentance should result in something real, should produce fruit. It's a, it's a metaphor. Your repentance should produce something real. So here's the outline for the morning. Uh, I'm going to talk about repentance, which again, I would probably not choose to talk about, uh, especially at Christmas time. So let's talk about repentance. What is repentance? Secondly, why is it important? And third, why in the world are we talking about this at Christmas time? And then along the way, we're going to talk about camels, and we're going to talk about locusts and honey and rocks and winnowing forks and all kinds of things like axes and vipers and all these strange things that come up in this passage, right? This is, this is Matthew's gospel, chapter 3, beginning in the first verse. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, has come near. And then Matthew, who is the writer, the narrator, the storyteller, he backs up and he provides this contextual statement for the reader. And what Matthew says is, This is he who was spoken about through the prophet Isaiah, who lived hundreds of years before this, who looked forward into history, enabled by the power of God, to see a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Okay, so there's a lot of figures here. The main character is John. We call him John the Baptist because he's baptizing people. Matthew is the storyteller. And Matthew identifies John the Baptist as the one that Isaiah, who lived like 800 years before, 
was talking about when Isaiah wrote, there will be a voice in the wilderness who says, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So uh, John's message is repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So let's pause here and uh, ask our first question. First question is, what is repentance? Uh, Several years ago, I did a whole series uh, on repentance, and at the end of the series, a good friend said, I needed a definition at the beginning. So here's the definition of repentance, right? You don't want to assume too much. The the word that's used in the New Testament is metanoia. It means to turn your mind around. It means to change your mind. It means literally to turn around, to turn your whole heart toward God, and to turn your back towards sin. We typically think of repentance as turning away from sin, and it is that. But it is also turning your heart towards God. This is one of the themes that we talked about at the men's weekend a few weeks ago. I turn my back to sin because sin disgusts me, because I abhor it, because it has caused damage in my family. It has divided people that I care about. It has pulled me down. If I don't believe that about sin, I'm not going to turn my back toward it. I'm going to kind of flirt with it. But repentance is turning my back towards sin. I want nothing to do with this anymore. And then there's a positive or constructive uh, dynamic too, which is I'm turning my, not just my face toward God, but I'm turning my heart toward God. I'm turning my mind toward God, turning my soul toward God, my very identity toward God. Repentance is something you do. It's an action. My good friend Rick Ashey, uh, we um, saw each other a couple times this week. He's preaching at the church where he serves in Sacramento. I said, this is what I'm talking about. And he said, confession is saying I'm sorry. That's confession. Repentance, he said, is doing I'm sorry, which is good. Isn't that good? Repentance is I'm sorry in action. Repentance is the action that backs up the words. I'm sorry. And here's the action that backs it up. We can, we can see that you've changed your mind. We can see that you've turned your life around because you're demonstrating the authenticity of your words. You don't need to see it. You don't need to say anything because your actions are communicating loud and clear. And so we know that it's genuine. So you got John the Baptist and he's a first century wilderness preacher and his main message is a message of repentance. He is very clear on this. What's he talking about? Turning away from sin, turning our hearts towards God. Real quick, kind of a sidebar, let's take a minute and look at Matthew's description of John the Baptist, because he's one of the most interesting characters in in the New Testament. Um, John's, this is um, verse 4. John's, I mean, Matthew's description of John is super weird, but it's also very symbolically rich. Everything about this guy communicates. This is what it says, John 4, or verse 4. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. I mean, everything about this man is communicating, and the volume is turned way up. He is loud. You don't want to invite this guy to your Christmas party. He will not blend in. He'll come in the house, and he'll just take over. There's nothing subtle about this guy, even a little bit. Even the guy's clothing is sending a message. The way he's dressed, 
repudiates any kind of value associated with power and wealth in the culture. He's just against it, right? He's this significant figure. I mean, take seriously what Matthew's saying. People from the whole region are venturing out into the wilderness to meet with this guy who's dressed up like in camel's hair, and they're listening to him teach. They're even doing what he's saying to do. They're being baptized. But he's not riding the popularity train. He's not overly inflated. His ego isn't really getting affected by this. His secondary message is, it's not about me. I'm just paving the way for somebody else. Everything about the way Matthew describes John the Baptist is communicating this one thing. It is the message of repentance. So here's a couple examples of what I'm talking about. He's dressed in camel's hair. Camel hair was a symbol of the rigorous work of repentance. Think of, if you've ever repented, it doesn't feel like a comfortable cotton t-shirt, does it? It feel, it's, it's rough, it's hard, it's agitated, it is not comfortable, it is uncomfortable. It is a process that involves rigor. you got to be intentional about it. You're aware of it the whole time how hard this is. I'm going to have to come clean about X, Y, or Z, and this is going to be hard work, discomfort. Um, also, there's the dietary laws of the Jewish people, which you read about in Leviticus and other places in the Old Testament. In other words, they have divided certain animals as clean and other animals as unclean. They, you can eat the clean ones, you can't eat the un- unclean. example of an unclean animal is like pork, a pig, in the, from a Jewish perspective, shellfish, not clean. Interesting, camels have features, according to the definition of clean and unclean animals, camels have features of both. Isn't that weird? And so the ancient church fathers see this as symbolic of the fact that John's message of repenting into the good news is for the clean and the unclean. It's for the Jews and the Gentiles. It's for everybody. Locusts are the food of penance. If you are intentionally embracing a season of discipline and fasting in ancient first century Palestine, you might go eat locusts. This might be, it's kind of like when I was a kid, lima beans. I mean, it was like a, a punishment food. I just hated them, right? And for you, lima beans, no, this is not what I want. I don't know where they came from. I asked my mom at the nine, why did we do that so often? Was I a bad kid? Locusts, the food of penance, but not just the food of penance. John also eats wild honey. Isn't that interesting? Which is a symbolic of the tender mercy of God. The tender mercy of God. John doesn't nurture a crop and work hard with the ground. No, he just wanders around and he finds beehives in the crags of the rock and provides this amazing honey. And it's symbolic of the merciful, undeserved grace and love of God. So even in his appearance, John is rejecting the common values of the culture, wealth, power. He's saying, turn your back to all that and turn your heart toward God. So I would summarize the message of John the Baptist with this. This is a hard message. It is not comfortable. Secondly, it is for everyone, Jews and non-Jews. Third, it will involve discipline. It will involve restriction. If you're going to repent, you're going to eat some locusts. And it will also involve God's tender mercy, the sweet honey of God's love. So this is John's message, and at this point in history, at this part of, in this part of the world, all kinds of people are responding to this. All kinds of people are coming out, lots of people. Verse 5 of, John, of Matthew 3, people went out to him from Jerusalem, that's the big city, and all Judea, that's the, kind of the county surrounding the city, 
and the whole region of Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So this entire area, there's people coming to him, which brings us to the second question this morning, which is this. Why is repentance important? Why is it important? John's message is a message of repentance. Why is that important? Put simply, very simply, repentance, which is turning around, is the way we receive forgiveness. It's the way we receive it. Forgiveness is given by God. It is a gracefully given um, gift from God. I do not earn forgiveness, but if I'm walking away from God and I'm walking toward my sin, I am taking myself out of the place I need to be in order to receive this gift given, right? So I need to, how do I receive this free gift given? I need to turn around. I need to repent and come back. Am I earning forgiveness? No, I'm just simply positioning myself by his grace to receive his grace. You see what I'm saying? This is the way, repentance is the way to receive forgiveness. Is anybody watching the new Disney Plus um, Mandalorian series, the Star Wars takeoff thing? Some of you guys? Yeah, we're having a lot of fun with this. Um, do you know what my favorite part is? Guess what my favorite part is? It's not Baby Yoda. No, that's what everybody says in 9 too. It's very cute. Not my favorite part. My favorite part is the main character is this very mysterious figure, cape, mask, never takes it off, strange behavior. So every once in a while, people are asking him, why do you do this? Why do you do that? And he, his answer is always the same. Do you know what his answer is? This is the way. And then those in his tribe, they say, this is the way. And I just love that. I just totally dig it. I'm walking around my house going, this is the way, right? This is, so essentially, this is what um, John is saying. Repentance matters, not for the sake of repentance in and of itself. Repentance matters because this is the way that we return to God. This is the way we receive the forgiveness that is offered to us um, through God. I don't earn it. God gives it. When I turn away from my sin and towards God, I am positioning myself in a way to receive this forgiveness. John's message of repentance is a way, is, is a message of making the way for the one who is Jesus, who's going to be baptized in the very next chapter, right? We receive forgiveness by turning toward God and acknowledging our need. All kinds of people come out to hear this message from John the Baptist, but not all are greeted the same. Look at verse 7. But when he, that is John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? <laughs> and then the key verse, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not a very nice welcome. Um, what's going on here? Well, it's been 400 years since there has been a prophet in Israel. Somehow, it is widely recognized that John is a prophet in the mold of the famous Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah. People get the news, they're coming out to the wilderness. There's a bit of a spectacle component to John's presence. It's a little bit of a carnival kind of a draw. So people are coming to watch, even if they're not being baptized. And some of the people who are coming to watch, apparently, are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are elite, Jewish, highly trained, religious, political leaders of two different sects, two different groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 
Jesus goes rounds with them in the Gospels. They've come to see what's going on in the desert, and why is everybody going out to see this strange man? And like the true prophets of old, John pulls no punches. He sees them, and he says what he sees. He's not even a little bit politically correct. He confronts the sin that he sees. He calls out, essentially, he calls out the Jewish leaders for not leading. They're spiritual leaders, but they're not providing spiritual leadership. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, these highly educated people, they should be leading their people back to God. They're in positions of spiritual authority, but they're more interested in their self-preservation than they are in justice or with justice and with mercy. More interested in preserving them themselves and their power than they are with justice and mercy. That's what Jesus says about them in another place. So maybe there are some who recognize, I really need God. I need to come back to God. Maybe that's why they've come out to see John. But as soon as John the Baptist sees them, he discerns a dramatic lack of genuine repentance. And what he says to them is brutally honest and brutally intense. It is more insulting than it sounds. This is what he says. First, he calls them a brood of vipers. What is, the, what is the dominant association with vipers or snakes or a serpent in the Bible? It's Satan. Who is the snake? Satan. John is greeting these guys, who, by the way, take great pride in believing that they are sons of Abraham, which is a way of saying we are the true sons of God. We are the true sons of God. They're wearing this. That's what they're dressed like. We are the true sons of God. And John's like, you're sons of Satan. <laughs> right? right out of the gate. John's essentially calling them sons of the devil. Second, John questions their motive by saying, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? His very question implies that they are objects of wrath. So John, who basically looks like a caveman, sees these well-dressed religious leaders come up over the horizon and they look like vipers. They're beautiful on the outside. They're shiny and clean, but in the inside, they're full of venom. And he essentially says, hey, sons of the devil, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Who told you to run away from your punishment that you deserve? It's just super intense. And then John delivers the prophetic word. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, it's like John saying, listen, people come to me because they're interested in repenting. And you're welcome to come and repent as well. But your actions better show that you mean what you say. That's what John's saying. Um, after high school, I went to college in the Bay Area. For two years, I went to a Jesuit school, Roman Catholic College. And um, it was there that I saw some of, the most, some of what's beautiful in Roman Catholicism. And it's also there where I had my first exposure to some of the stereotypical kind of pain points and abuses that are associated with Roman Catholicism in our culture. Uh, I was not Catholic, so none of this was familiar to me. It was all very new to me, but I quickly became aware of this interesting pattern. Lots of these kids that had grown up Catholic, they would go to Mass every weekend. They would go to a Mass on Saturdays at 10 p.m., they had a mass in the mission at 10 p.m. on Saturday nights. And here's essentially how the rhythm of the life there worked for many people. The partying would start on Thursdays, and it would go all through Friday. It would hit a pinnacle on Friday night. 
probably end somewhere in the early morning Saturday. People would sleep all Saturday. It was super quiet. It was like the place was abandoned. And then they'd wake up and they'd go to 10 p.m. Mass. And at the Mass, there were several booths where priests were available for you to confess your sin. And many students would. And many students were talking about stuff that had happened in the previous 48 hours. And what was so interesting to me, because realize this is all new to me, and I really wasn't in the party culture, and I wasn't in the Catholic culture. So I'm just like this naive freshman <laughs> trying to figure this out. And I would ask my friends questions like, so, so you actually told a priest what you did last night? Yeah. You confess, yeah. Well, do you, is anything going to change? Or does this pattern just continue? Because it appears that the pattern just continues the next weekend. In other words, I was seeing this high level of focus on repentance, but I wasn't seeing repentance produce any change. And I should say this, there's nothing wrong with that structure. What was wrong with the, was, was with the people abusing that structure, not taking that opportunity, that beautiful opportunity, which we embrace every Sunday as well, just in a slightly different form, which is let's take a moment to confess our sins. The problem isn't with the structure. The problem is with this abuse of the structure. But essentially, my question was, is this going to matter? Is this going to change you? Is anything going to happen as a result of this repentance? So I won't take too much time with the rest of this passage. Let me read the rest of what John says and just comment briefly. Verse 9, John says, And do you think you... He's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders. He said, And do you think that you can say... To, or, I'm sorry. Do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The trump card for the religious elite in the Jewish faith is we are related to Abraham. He's the man who started this whole thing. He is Father Abraham. And John's perspective is that doesn't matter at all. God created humanity out of dirt. He can create more sons of Abraham out of these rocks. The fact that you're related to somebody means nothing if it doesn't show up in your action. You can't play that card. You can't try to ride the goat, the tote the coattails of somebody else into the presence of God. Verse 10, he says, the ax is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's a very strong judgment statement, isn't it? Verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. He's like, that's my gig. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will, in other words, plunge you, submerse you, fill you with the presence of God and this unpredictable, unquenchable fire of the reality of God's holiness. It's like, we're just talking about elementary stuff compared to what's going to happen you ought to be ready for that. Here comes the second and final judgment statement. John says, his, referring to Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand. 
He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I've never seen this in real life. I had to look it up. Think about a pitchfork into a big stack of hay or wheat, and then the farmer throws it up in the air into the breeze, which carries the chaff and the straw away, and the grain falls to the floor, and that's the good. That's what you want. That's what you're gathering. So John's like, it doesn't matter who you're related to. It's judgment time. If you're not producing good fruit, you are failing to become the person you were created to be. John says, now is the time to repent and to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, now is the time for your actions to match your words. Not just to say I'm sorry, but to do I'm sorry. Real repentance is doing I'm sorry. Which takes us to the final question. Why in the world is this text set up as a Christmas text? Why are we talking about this during the season of Advent? It doesn't feel like it fits in some ways. I think the answer is essentially because repentance almost never happens without a reason. I don't think you're just strolling along on the sidewalk someday whistling a tune and you go, I just kind of feel like repenting. It's just such a beautiful day. I don't, it just doesn't work like that. Real change is almost always motivated by an outside force, an outside motivation. I think we're talking about this in preparation for Christmas because real preparation is motivated by a coming event, a deadline. You study the hardest the night before the test. You stay up late wrapping presents because Christmas is... Tomorrow, Advent is the season where we remember the birth of Jesus, but it's also the season where we look forward to his return. Christ's return has been anticipated for a long, long time. And for most, especially the hurting, especially the grieving, especially the vulnerable, the refugee, Christ's return is a reason for hope. Christ's return is really good news because Christ's return means justice is coming back. Christ's return means peace is coming back. And so we pray and we sing, come, long expected Jesus. But friends, there's also this. Christ's return is an event for which we need to be very ready. Very ready. It's a deadline. It's an event. And we need to be motivated it is the reason to be motivated. To what? To action. When Jesus returns, we want to be ready. We want to be very ready. Have you seen this commercial that they're playing during football games recently? I don't even know who it's advertising for. I just, and the, the tagline is, just okay is not okay. Have you seen this? And, and so there's a couple in a pre-op hospital room, and they're talking to the nurse, and they say, have you ever worked with Dr. So-and-so? And the nurse says, yeah, he's okay. And you see this face. It's really effective. Their face just goes like this, because if you're about to be operated on, you don't want it to be on the, you know, with the hands of a surgeon who is just okay, right? I think it's really effective. In a similar way, if you're going to meet God, you don't want to be kind of ready, right? You don't want to be sort of prepared. I mean, for you and for me, the next couple weeks, it's all about preparation, is it not? We have so much to do. We're going to go get a tree after church today. We're behind already, right? We're already behind. None of us wants to be kind of ready for even the experiences in our family for the next couple weeks. I don't want to give my kid a, a, a half-wrapped frame of a bicycle, and go, yeah, you know, I didn't have time to order the pedals, and I still got to get to Target to get the, the, the tires. That is lame. 
I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to invite people over for dinner and say, I'm sort of prepared. I have gravy. Haven't started the potatoes. I think it'll be about three hours. I mean, you don't want to be that guy, right? You don't want to be sort of prepared, kind of ready. Friends, I'm coming to the end. Here it is. Advent is a Christian church season, especially set apart for the intentional preparation of the soul. Before Coca-Cola put a red robe on St. Nick that's exactly the same color as their can, how convenient, and Christmas became this economic engine throughout the West, the season of Advent was a quiet time of reflection and uh, prayer and preparation and, yes, repentance in anticipation of the coming of God as Christ right? For the receiving of God in the flesh, in real, our life, in our world, like us. Repentance has to do with Christmas for the simple reason that if you knew that Jesus was coming over to your house tonight, it would dictate your whole afternoon. If you knew Jesus was coming to your house tonight, you'd probably stand up right now if you got the word, and you'd probably head out of here because you would want to be ready, not kind of ready, not sort of prepared, but you would want to be very ready And really, it wouldn't be about your house. It would be about your soul. You would want your soul to be ready. Have you ever been in a room, in a hospital room, with a family member or a friend when a doctor comes in and says, it is time, you need to put your affairs in order? Has anyone ever experienced that? I mean, there is a a sobering quality to that announcement, and it changes the behavior of a person, or it should. It almost always does, in my experience. What do they do? They confess where the parts of their lives where their actions haven't met their words, haven't matched their words. They say, I'm sorry, to people they need to apologize for. That's what I've seen. And to whatever degree they're able, with whatever time they have left, they They do what they can to change their ways, to change their actions so that they themselves, the actions themselves communicate, I'm sorry. They they don't just say, I'm sorry. They do, I'm sorry. And it is the reality of the soon coming king that motivates this much, much needed change, isn't it? It's the reality of the soon coming king. That motivates this much-needed change. It is the reminder of some of the very specific, that that at some very specific point in the not-so-distant future, Jesus is going to come or I'm going to go to him, one of the two. He's going to come back or I'm going to go to him. And then who I am and who I've become will become absolutely revealed in all truth. It will be obvious what is actually real and true. Should I fear that day? No. Should I do everything in my power to do what I can to be prepared for that day? Yes, I should. It should be a driving force. It should be a motivating factor. So I should let the season of Advent be a gift to me. I should allow the season of Advent to do the work in me that it's designed to do, which is to call me to repentance to call me to genuine repentance, to prepare myself to receive the king. So may each of us take to heart the words of John the Baptist. 
as we ourselves prepare for the coming of Jesus. May we produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Let me take a minute of silence and just invite you to reflect and maybe to pray. We ask God to shine a light, to make it clear there is something that needs to be made right. Maybe there's words that you need to say, but maybe there's also an action that needs to be taken, a change. God, you are the light, and you are the path. You are the shepherd of our soul. Your motive towards us is good and loving. We don't have to fear you, but we ask you to show us what in us needs to be adjusted, changed, refused, repented away from, so that all that we are and all that we have could be offered to you, that we would be very ready, that we would live in readiness. Have mercy on us. May this season do its work in us. May we wait, and as we're waiting, may we repent. May our repentance produce fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.